0: Hey everybody! This is episode six of the Running Rogue podcast. I'm here in Austin at Rogue Running, the running store and training center that's bringing you this podcast. Steve is with me, although he's not here physically. He is on the phone, so you're going to get a little bit of a different sound from him today. Hey, Steve. Hi, Greg. <laughs> Steve is in Colorado this week, so he's joining remotely. But we've got it. We've got him patched in and ready to go. Today, we're going to begin a series to talk about mental training and mental preparation. Both Steve and I as coaches feel this this is a topic that's underrepresented in terms of both content that exists on it in the context of running, but also how much we talk about it, given how much the mental component plays a role for you in training and on race day. So we're going to break down why it's important today and then lay out a framework that we've developed for how you should think about mental training. And we're going to do this in a series of over four to five episodes over the next several months. We'll do about one a month as we walk through this framework. So we're going to tee all of that up today. Before we dive into that topic, however, we're going to start with, as we always do, some current news. And with that, I have to eat a little bit of crow today. On on episode three, I mentioned the U.S. field for Boston, and Jordan Hesse was one of those athletes, and she had her race in Houston this past weekend on Sunday and ended up with the second fastest debut half marathon for an American female on a record... Only Kara Goucher was faster, is well, that correct? Well, no. Uh, Kara was not record eligible, so I'm actually counting Molly Huddle. She uh, yes. she debuted uh, about, f- I think it was six seconds faster than, than Hesse. And so... You know, so really fast debut. Kara debuted with the fastest time run for a half ever by an American female in 106.57. Hers isn't record, record eligible because it was on a point-to-point uh, downhill course at the Great North Run. But if you look at this result from Hesse, she, she ran a 108.40, which is only a minute and six seconds slower than the U.S. half record, which Dina Castor holds on a record-eligible course. And she did it, on a day that was really muggy really warm and humid definitely not ideal and this puts her now as the sixth fast fastest American female ever for the distance she's up there with the likes of Kara Goucher Dina Castor as I mentioned Molly huddle Shalane Flanagan and the great Joan Benoit Samuelson so here she is and and I think she proved that she might actually have what it takes for these longer distances in spite of the doubts I expressed in episode three. What did yeah, you I mean, think of this pretty performance? Heady, it's pretty,
1: pretty heavy uh, customers that she's in there with, you know? you know, she's never done anything to this level in her career. You know, she was the darling at the 2008 Olympic trials where she as a high school senior um, or junior, I believe was being yelled at by the crowd to come to Oregon and come to Oregon and uh, while she had an amazing collegiate career and even had a pretty solid post-collegiate career in making a world championship team in the 10,000, th- this is, no one expected her to be at the level that she is right now.
0: Yeah, it's impressive. And I mean, if you look at her PRs, I was researching it today. I mean, she's got a 407-1500 PR that even though she was the uh, the USATF youth world record holder or or, uh, national record holder at one point for the 15, her her 1500 PR is still only 407, which isn't really that world class uh, when you look at the the best of the best in that event. And then if you look at her 5K and 10K PRs, she's got a 1528 5K PR and a 3139 10K PR. And you know, really, if you're looking at the best of the best in the U.S., you're going to be close to 15 on the 5K and, and certainly under 31 for the 10K. So... So this puts her up there for sure as her best just raw performance. And the question then becomes, Steve, if, what does this mean for her for her Boston debut? If you put this into the McMillan calculator, the 108, it, it turns out to a 224 it, by his calculator. So what do you think this means for her Boston?
1: Well, first of all, it means there's going to be a whole lot more hype going around Jordan, which... Um, in many athletes' case, I would be a little bit worried about, but I'm sure that Jordan can handle it. Um, the other piece that comes in here, though, is um, you know I've always been a big, I've always believed that um, all those races you just indicated, those events that from the 1500 all the way to the half marathon, um, they all exist sort of within a physiological framework, one that sort of if you do the training at these levels, then the result. Sort of plays out almost automatically, assuming that you keep your business together and can can, can have a good day and have good weather. Um, but in the marathon, we're talking about something, excuse me, altogether different. Um, and I have watched many many people run significantly fast ten ks and half marathons and not necessarily been able to parlay them into a phenomenal full. But in this case, um, I do think, given two basic things that I think are really crucial and critical in Jordan's case that are that are beneficial to her. Um, could make the difference. Um, The first is she has the best coach in the business, bar none in my opinion. Um, And she has been working with him for a considerable period of time, and this progression is something they've been planning on. You know, Alberto Salazar is her coach. They've been planning on this progression for a long, long, long time. And so it's really interesting to see how confident they are. Um, In the post-race interview at Houston, it was really interesting. that She made a comment to the effect that she was really planning on trying to go 68 flat. So that means that that's what alberto has got her prepared for if she's preparing for 68 flat then you know she's probably training in the range to be between 220 and 224 so that mcmillan you know that sort of mcmillan uh, projected time um may be within reach um the second thing is i watched i was i didn't actually go back and look at splits but i was on that houston marathon course standing at about the five mile marker and when that you know they had um elite vehicles that were sort of t- filming the race and leading out each one of the four races that were going on there. Houston has both halves for men and women and both uh, marathons for men and women. And when that truck came by for the women in the, in the half marathon, I mean, the two runners up front, they were gone. And then Hesse was sitting, it looked to me like 30, 45 seconds, maybe even a minute back and behind a couple of other runners, other female runners as well. And so her patience and her ability to stay focused and know the objective was hugely impressive when I actually ended up seeing the end of the final results of her race. So I think that she may have some of that skill set that's really necessary to take your to be a great marathoner. Patience her mechanics are phenomenal. I think I talked about that the last time we talked about it When you said that she wasn't going to be able to wouldn't necessarily be able to transition to the marathon My view was she definitely has built for it. So I don't know exactly how it'll play out Um, It's a long way to go from a half to a full But I do think that people should be bullish on her and I do think um, The hype will be deserved whether she can step up to it. Well,
0: you know what? That's why we run races (laughs) It'll be interesting too because it'll be at Boston one of the oh, yes. most epic courses, and of course, the the home of Alberto's duel in the sun, where he was the champion there. So he's probably got a few tips to share with you his You know, one thing though, too, Chris, that
1: I think is important is I'm not sure that. Uh I don't think that, you know, when you look at the approach that, that, you know, Alberto coaches Galen as well, Galen Rupp, and I think that you're going to see two completely different race plans for Galen Rupp and for Jordan Hussein. I think at Galen Rupp you're going to have a race plan that says, put your nose in the race and run whatever happens in race, right? And I think Jordan might end up running like she did at Houston, sitting back a little bit. As you and I both know, our recommendation on running all the Boston courses to, is to kind of do an, uh, a basically an even split race, but it's a negative split effort. And you really try to come on strong late. And most of the league fields don't run that way. They usually go out exceedingly fast or exceedingly slow Um, if the race goes out fast watch Jordan not go with it sit back and probably work through um, Newton Hills and coming off of heartbreak and see how much ground she can make up on those leaders so I do think you'll see two different plans and you'll probably see um, the skills the skills that Alberto has as a coach played out pretty amazingly
0: it'll be interesting I'm definitely rooting for her in spite of my negativity on the the last time we talked about it so speaking of Boston they recently also announced the elite, the full elite fields for the for the race. And so now we have a picture of the international competitors that will be coming in. And if we start with the women's side, since we're talking about Jordan, obviously we've got Shalane and Dez as well on the women's side for the Americans. But Boston has brought, in addition to that, three women that have run under 220, Edna Kepligat, Gladys Cherno, and and Berzunesh Deva from Ethiopia, so a couple of Kenyans and an Ethiopian that have world-class resumes with the marathon. And then, of course, Shalane and Dez that have their own solid resumes there. So what do you think about that field, and what, how would you handicap the Americans in it?
1: You know, the field is amazing. Um, it's amazing on the women's side to think about the, the amount of talent that's going to be on, on target. But as we know, Boston is a weird race. Um, you know, you especially see that play out on the men's side. On the women's side, um, you know, they have a much more of a tendency to go at the gun and just race instead of playing the cat and mouse game that happens in men's races. So I I would say I still do believe that you're not going to see an American winner at this race. I think that um, some of the foreign runners will go off the front very, very hard. I wouldn't be surprised if Shalane went with them. She has had a tendency to and and a consistency of saying she wants to be in it because the only way you can win it is if you're in it. Um, so I, I would expect her to go for it, um, which then puts you know a little bit of a different spin on what might be happening um, a little bit further back and also what might be happening with both with with Dez. So I, I think that I, I think that women on the excuse me on the um, in the us on the women's side, I think we could have three or four runners in the top. 10 easily maybe two runners in the top five i think that that's entirely doable which is super exciting but i'm not sure that we're going to get the magic for a women women's win i would love to see shalane win i would love to see desi win. i'd love to see them come from behind so you know i don't know exactly how it'll all play out but i do know it's going to be a phenomenal race
0: it'll be interesting we know des likes to run her own race so she'll find her pace and kind of settle in so it'll be interesting to see if her and jordan end up working together if if she follows a plan similar to what you just described, we will see. On the men's side, Rupp has some serious competition. <laughs> I I think that people like to compare the London field to the Boston field. The London field is probably even more stacked than the Boston field, but the Boston field certainly is no slouch, or you know doesn't have any slouches in it. So you've got seven men who have run under 205. You've got the current world record holder, Dennis Cometo. You've got the former world record holder in in Patrick Macau. And then, you know, another guy, Emmanuel Mutai, who's run low two oh threes, as well as the defending champion, Lemmy Hale, who has run two oh four. So you've got a stacked field. Of course it's worth mentioning that when Meb won in two thousand fourteen and surprised the field, Dennis Cometo was in that field as well and ended up DNFing. So It'll be interesting, you know this this group relative to London. I think there's one more sub two hundred five guy, but but the the folks in the field in Boston haven't run it as recently, or haven't run fast as recently as some of the London competitors. But Rupp has his hands full. So, what do you think of that field?
1: I I'm uh, I'm I think Galen can win it. Um, I'm pretty. I've been incredibly impressed. I was really impressed by his race at the Olympic games. Um, I think if it goes tactical, um, they, all of those guys are in deep trouble. Um, I'm confident that the kind of racing style that Gaelin will bring to it um, will be, will be, it will, it will play in his hands for him to get a win. Am I predicting a win? I don't know. There's so many fast people, but I do think that it's much more likely to see a win on the men's side than on the women's side, in my opinion. Um, You know, it, it. it's he's not going to he's not going to drop out he's going to bring it no matter what happens and uh i think you know it should play out to be an interesting race um it's also interesting that uh kenanessi was going to run try to make a big push for, at dubai tomorrow i think for a world record so we'll see that sort of changes the the outlook on what was happening out at uh at london too so again you know within a very short period of time i think those two races are london and boston are like a week apart or a week and a half apart some of the best marathoners in the world are going to be telling it and we're going to see two epic amazing races it's it's super
0: exciting it'll be good plus two very different races london is usually paced and is a fast barn burner from the gun boston is the race where as you say usually the men start slow and then finish strong as they get into newton hills and beyond so the tactics will be interesting in boston for sure and i think that as you say that's why Rupp has a chance Because most of those guys that have run 203, 204 have done so in paced races where they can just sit back and turn their mind off. But this race is unlike that for sure, where you have to be on your game the whole time. Or something can happen like Meb running off the front in 2014, and those guys found themselves getting caught out. So we shall see. Coming up in April, we'll find out. All right, with that, let's jump into our topic for the day. As I said, we're going to talk about mental training and basically just lay out two things today one why is it important and and also how important is it and then we're going to lay out our framework for talking about mental training that we put together that we'll then cover in subsequent episodes of this series on mental training and m- mental preparation so with that intro steve i want to turn it to you a lot of times when we think about running we know there's a huge mental component but we don't necessarily know how much that is. or And we don't really, frankly, spend a lot of time thinking about it or training it. But if I were just to ask you the question, how much is mental versus physical in the context of running? You know, how big is the mental component?
1: You know, we we've all heard the adage that, racing is 90% mental and 10% physical. Um, And, you know, I think that's sort of a bastardization of Yogi Berra's famous quote on baseball, you know, where he said baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical, which, by the way, is a really amazing quote. And (laughs) it it, it really is a pretty, you know, a lot of people remember that quote is 90% mental and 10% physical, but didn't say it that. He said it's it's, it's 90% mental and the other half is physical, (laughs) which means it's adding up to about 160%, which you know and yogi bear speak we all know he's he was the master of non, of of non and, and and really an interesting and incredible guy but you know i think that that statement of it being 90% mental and the other half is physical is a lot more along the lines of the way i view it um i view it that uh especially in in running and especially in marathoning um that in essence it's 100% physical and 100% of mental you know of course I added another 40% to Yogi's uh, quote, but, uh, you know, it's a little bit philosophical stating it that way. And it's obviously not accurate in the strict terms, but whenever we're using percentages, it's always a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a getting people's attention thing in the first place. You know, let's stay with that kind of original adage that it, that it all comes down, that's come down to us over the years, because I mean, if it's realistic, that is 90%, mental and 10% physical, then I think we've got to completely rethink the way that we train for races. Um, I think this is a really important point that people don't pay attention to. Um, We need to put more and more time and attention, preparing for the mental aspects of what's going to be happening to our bodies on the course. And most of our training, the way that we line training up, we're spending time working on specific paces on distances run, on distances run in this energy zone or in this uh, exercise physiological space and not really talking at all about what is going on between our ears in training. Um, And so it's no wonder when we get to the starting line of a race, we stand there, pissing down the side of our legs, freaked out about what's going on. Because all we really worked on in the context of training was how to put one foot in front of the other at the paces that we needed to. And we didn't look at what's actually going on between our ears and and what's happening to us before the race, during the race, and then even after the race. So, you know, if we all spend, if we all spend nearly 10% of our preparation for racing, if we switched that and turned it where we started to spend you know an, at least as much time working on our mental framework as we did on our physical framework, I think we'd end up end up having great great results um, you know it' it's, it's an important thing to recognize that our preparation you I, I like to say in training frequently that what will the race require and when I talk about that, I've almost always talked about it from the context of what will the race require of you physically, um, and that's what all of my athletes hear from me. Um, but you know, I now know, and I've known for years, but I'm beginning to get feel much, much more strongly that we also need to know what the race requires from us
0: mentally. Yeah, it's interesting, especially when you think about it in the context of examples. You know, this past weekend, as we mentioned, was the Houston Marathon. It was a particularly warm day. Started out about 68 degrees and 95% humidity with headwinds in the last six miles. So there was nothing ideal about the conditions. And when you have that kind of adversity, you often see what people are made of mentally. And, you know, I remember one of our athletes that I had the privilege of running about a mile with in the last three miles of the race, Kristen Tucker. She, you know, had an amazing day. And when I saw her, at that point in the race, I I think I probably could have swung my fist, you know, in front of her in front of her nose and she wouldn't (laughs) have seen it. You know, it was like she she, she was in a different place. She was so dialed in, so focused on what she had to do to get through the suffering that she was in, which was clearly intense, um, that, you know, she would not be denied. And You know, it was interesting because I was talking to some people today on our run about that and people were commenting on Kristen and saying, man, you know, she's really strong mentally. I wish I could be that strong mentally. And so it did make me think, you know, how much of this is just kind of what we're made of and how much of it is trained or is trainable. So I'll turn that next question to you. You know, can you train the mental and how much of it is just innate?
1: Well, I personally believe in all things running, anything over basically, I would say, the 1,500 meters, um, the person that works, that, that, that physical talent is, is less important the longer you go, and physical and mental talent is more important. Um, but what your question is, is, is that innate in any human being or every human being? You know, when I go back to saying this, I think a lot of times we think of Ourselves or our performance or who we are as our that 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 our mind is in our brain, right? And this is an interesting concept that the brain is a part of the body, but yet we think of the brain this like amorphous blob of goo or whatever it is inside of our head that we seem to think that and and our definitely our training our scientific sort of scientist worldview that has taken over for the last hundred years is really pushing this idea that we are just we're just what's going on in our brain we're just chemical our chemical composition um and yet we talk about mind and the mind sits in this weird spot where we're um where we're discussing our ability to think our willing to problem solve our ability to take the emotions that we have where those come from and so this mind isn't sitting in our brain it's like this other thing and that part of what we do is got is that part of who we are or what our mind is is really in my opinion, I think, comes down to two basic things. It does come down to our our worldview and our ability to view ourselves, how we see ourselves in the context of a worldview. And we'll talk about a lot of that later on. We're not gonna go into too much of that right now. But it's also has a lot to do with what's happened in you in your life experience, what your environment is. And I know I've coached I coach Kristen since we used her as an example. I know that her family background and the struggles that she's had as a human being have put her in a position where she's capable of doing things that other people are not when she's out on the run because she suffered and she knows what suffering is. And she has the ability to look at that suffering that's happening to her in a race and sort of contextualize it and say, this isn't as bad as what I've dealt with in my life. Um, And so I think what she has is basically more experiential, insight into not necessarily who she is but more into how she can deal with suffering and pain and so yeah is that inborn natural no i think it's a little bit more of environment but she's certainly better prepared for that than someone who's been lived you know with a silver spoon in their mouth and not had to struggle and not had to stress um and so in in essence it's a little bit of both you know I, i think but i think mostly it's trainable um, it's
0: totally trainable. So she's trained in a sense by other life experiences, not necessarily because she specifically trained herself in a running Correct. context.
1: But also, you noticed something in that race with her, which is super interesting, too. You know, I, I'd only been able to see her run short races, i never gotten to see her run a full marathon race. I, it spooked me out when I saw her at the five mile mark, and she looked like she had, like, I called it the, you know, the death stare. I mean, she was like 100 million miles away.
0: You <laughs> look like a ghost she, of sorts.
1: Yeah, she's going to tear somebody's head off, you know what I mean? At the same time, it's like, how is that possible that she looks like she's asleep, but yet she's incredibly fierce? So I do think that she might – there might be something to that, that that when stress comes in, she was able to go to a different place. But I'm 100% certain that if someone doesn't have that naturally – that they can create a training protocol for the mental side that would allow them to be able to do that. Um, I totally believe that that's trainable. Um, I do think that it's exciting for for those athletes who already have that skill set to be able to then add some meat to the bones of what they're doing and create an even more ferocious and fierce way of racing. Um, But, yeah, I think it's totally trainable.
0: So let's talk about the mind-body connection because you know, to this point, we've kind of talked about the mental side and we've talked about physical sides. And oftentimes when they're talked about, they're talked about separately in in a sense, you know, clearly they come together when you're moving through space in a race. But oftentimes we, we talk about them distinctly in terms of training, but how important is the mind body connection and, and how do you describe it? Because that's, it is a little bit weird. You know, as you talk about, you've got this blob in your head. You also have, depending on your worldview, maybe some soul elements that come in. So Talk about the mind-body connection.
1: Yeah. So this is uh, you know, there's the whole idea of talking about about you know mental toughness or people will want to talk about mental toughness. But when we talk about sports psychology or doing things like self-talk or when we talk about the mind-body connection, most people from the western from the, in the western world get really uncomfortable and kind of squeamish about it. They don't want to talk about um, those. Aspects, And I think some of that harkens back to our culture's fear of the psychological stigma attached to needing any help or needing help with our minds. And I think we could be people are fear a little bit being labeled crazy or schizophrenic or they want to avoid about what they actually think. You know, it makes me think about when I was in high school, my father was my coach for the majority of my youth, and he would ask me frequently to work on visualization and self-talk. And I would, I would try to do it. I remember sitting in front of a mirror looking at myself and, uh, you know, the, the, the method that he suggested came from, you know, Anthony Robbins and maybe from neuro-linguistic programming and from some, some, some kind of out there, you know, places. But I would just look in that mirror and I would feel so weird, it's so fake, it's pretty like in, inauthentic, you know. So I kind of threw it away and just started working on training my body, um, and it got me pretty far. But I don't think I ever really reached my potential because, frankly, I think I was afraid. And I think that fear, um, that simple fear of rejection or that simple fear of not getting the results that we want to get, um, kind of it, it, it kind of puts this huge disconnect between what we talk about between our mind and our body. And I think that that has to change. You know, in order to provide the best results for my athletes. I need to start preparing them mentally. We need to create a master mental training plan and then work through those specific training protocols in tandem with what's going on physically in the training protocols. So what we have to do basically is take the workout and say we're going to run half marathon goal pace for three times two miles. And in that, not only are we going to do that to work on that, but these are the things I want you to be thinking about while you're going through that. That take That requires you taking the body, mentally thinking and taking the body to go through this work and then bringing in the mental part, not just going on autopilot, not just talking and grab assing with your buddies and the people that you're running with, and not sitting there moaning and groaning about the fact that you're suffering and you're hurting, but instead really connect and really integrate and really dial in what's happening physiologically with what's happening with your body. So the Asaro tribe of Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, they have a saying that I think gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. And, um, it's a little bit weird. So, but, so stay with me, but it says basically that the quote is knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the muscle. Um, and that's an incredibly insightful statement that the things we know are not real until we put it into our body. Um, and we, Our Western culture does not spend a lot of time talking about that, but I think we all sort of, if you think through the things that you've been able to accomplish over time, if they have a physiological component, you can usually go back and realize you had to process that information, that knowledge, through the context of your body in order to get what you wanted. So we have to take whatever mental skills we're trying to develop and run them through the gauntlet of our physical training. They have to be synchronized so that we know that the work that we're practicing on, the paces that we're trying to run, or the physical skills that we're trying to develop, are dovetailing with a with an equal or, or a, a different, but some kind of other mental skill. If we do that, then we get to the point where we integrate that mental concept into our body and into the act of movement. Chris, you've heard me say many, many times, the, the term moving through space and this reaches sort of really deep into the thing that I'm talking about. It's talking about how we move our bodies while still being integrated mentally with the process. Um, you can't learn that from a book or in an article. You have to incorporate it into your physical experience. And you know, it goes back to that. That I, my argument that the best approach is sort of seeing your race and even seeing your training as 100% mental and
0: 100% physical. You know, Carrying that forward a little bit, it's interesting. Matt Fitzgerald, who's a running author that talks in some of his books about training principles and all, but also has a book on on the mental side of running and training for all athletes called "How Bad Do You Wa- Called How Bad Do You Want It?" And in his book, he puts forward this concept that your mind is basically designed to shut you down before you get to a dangerous place. So, if we're running really fast, the mind is subconsciously trying to limit you, or at least you know, not let you exceed a certain level of exertion because it's trying to protect itself from whatever it may be, overheating, not having, not having enough oxygen, uh, failing you know, internally. And so, there's this built-in limiter in the mind that you don't necessarily know about or, or control consciously. And so, you know, it kind of speaks to what you're talking about, but it also brings up this idea that the mind-body connection, in a way, is also a bit of a battle. You know, it's, it's warfare between, you know, your mind trying to get your body to do something that maybe it doesn't want to do or it's signaling itself not to do. So, talk about that analogy in this context as, as this you know this mind-body connection as as a battle or as warfare cool
1: so first i want to go back to your comment about um uh basically what what tim noakes called in the 90s the central governor theory which is what um you you alluded to in um the book what's his name's book i just forgot
0: Matt Fitzgerald.
1: Goes, yeah Matt Fitzgerald is, that central governor theory is what he's espousing um and ultimately i i don't Personally, agree with the idea of a central governor, or if there is a central governor, I don't think it's some sort of, you know, godlike uh, absolute hard edge where someone will stop. I think that that is, as we talked about earlier, I think it's trainable. That while we do have a tendency and our brain has a tendency to sort of want to shut us down and turn us off when we reach a certain level of suffering, I also think that we can absolutely go through. We need another model that says that central governor theory isn't necessarily the one that is, but some kind of statement that says we understand that our bodies will shut down, but we can transcend it. Um, And that's what I think mental training is all about. It's all about sort of getting yourself to a point where you transcend um, the specific suffering base that you're in and then use your mind to push through that Manage the the, the each instance where your body wants to shut down, both mentally, where you want to shut down because some of it's fear, right? Some of it's physical, what you want to break, you want to shut down because your body just can't take it anymore. And very rarely do we see runners run themselves into um, a hole where they can't get out of. But that I just wanted to bring up and talk about that central governor theory because I think it's important to say that I do think that there's a lot of thinking now that's that's sort of changing the way that view is. But you you brought up the idea of thinking about um, sort of getting on a starting line as as warfare. And uh, you know, I agree, on the starting line of any race, the, the runner grasps at so many things to try to help them manage the stress and the nervousness that seems to pretty much completely engulf them before their really big effort. And it's usually in the hours and minutes prior to that sort of command performance. And, you know, you and I coach our athletes for command performances where we run one race a year or two races a year where all that pressure and all that work and all that time spent getting ready for one command performance can really get debilitating and get us to the point where we start to look much deeper inside of ourselves and ask ask ourselves why. You know, I recently had a conversation with one of my athletes where I said to her, Listen, I mean, if you think about it, the idea of getting on a starting line and running 26.2 miles at the very edge of what you're physically capable of and going through all kinds of different weather conditions and everything else, it doesn't make any freaking sense. I mean, it's basically absurd. And and so you have to look at that sort of absurdity thing and, um, and figure out how we can transcend that kind of freaked out space and... And, and, and yet, still look at it and say, "Okay, this isn't m- meaningless. It has some kind of meaning." Um, you know, th- you're volunteering to suffer, but some way that suffering has to have some kind of meaning. You know, and that that kind of experience of standing on the starting line and asking why sort of always reminds me of the statement that, that I've heard many, many times, which is that there are no atheists in foxholes. You know, and uh, it, it's, there's a tendency to, in times of extreme stress or fear. Um, you know, and and that's a war analogy, and such as war, you know, people start to look for and start to try to find a higher higher power, or they start to kind of look at any kind of meaning that they can pull out of the situations that they find themselves in. So anyone who wants anyone who wants to race a race result badly enough, but yet wasn't entirely sure of their fitness has experienced that feeling of kind of like absolute fear and loathing, almost existential dread about the process, you know? Um, so I think some people think that maybe looking at equating a race with war is an overstep. But, you know, in 1910, the eminent, you know, psychologist William James, he wrote a book called The Moral Equivalent of War. And basically in that book, he was, he tries to understand why throughout history, humans have been so attracted to and have so much loved warfare. And it's interesting because his theory is that people fight because it makes them feel good. It's really kind of a weird concept, right? But it's because it makes soldiers feel more awake and alive than they would be normally in everyday, ordinary life. So it brings out the higher human qualities that are in all of us, but are kind of dormant in the day-to-day mundane realities of work and family and whatever leisure activities we're looking at. So preparing for warfare requires discipline, courage, self-sacrifice, any other number of pretty virtuous you know, accolades. But it, it, it those things are also the same things that runners have to bring out as they approach a race, right? We have to be disciplined. We have to have courage. We have to self-sacrifice. So is it isn't really that much of a stretch to say that, What's going on in racing is what goes on in war. I'm not trying to, to, to basically state, say that they are equivalent. What I will say is what 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 um, William James said is that they might be moral equivalents. And so we're looking for reasons to push ourselves, to stretch ourselves beyond what we're capable of, and to go into a place of fear because it makes us feel more alive. It makes us feel more more like we're living uh, an inspired and, and and scary sort of existence um you know and, and anytime you talk to athletes uh before after races they have almost always tell you that they learn so much more about themselves through the process of suffering and you know you and i both know that marathoning is especially true in this area you know it's especially true in in, in the
0: marathon I mean, that's why we do it, right? This week, I was in Bokeh Day on Monday. I shared this quote with the athlete's I coach, and he said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And obviously, what he was doing pales in comparison to what we do training as runners, but a lot of the reason why people do these events and push themselves like they do is because they want to find out what they're made of, <laughs> they, They want to see what happens when they put themselves on the limit and, you know, see how they respond. And so, you know, I think that that's all the elements you're talking about. And and it is a a battle of sorts, at least metaphorically, between your mind and your body. It's a battle between you and the road. It's a battle between you and potentially competitors next to you and where they finish versus you. So there's a lot of sort of head to head elements that go along with that analogy. Now. As we go but, but Chris, into... But go then ahead. also, but then let's go back to
1: our original, my original point, which is the sort of old adage that says it's 90% mental and 10% physical. So we're talking about all these things, but yet we're still basically throwing it up to the, to the gods to determine whether or not we have success or not. We're not actually creating a training plan that allows us to to have that success that we're talking about. We value the lessons that we're going to learn from winning or losing, right, of succeeding or failing, but yet we're not preparing ourselves for the things that are actually going to happen in a race. I find it incredibly interesting that we'll talk about these high, you know, virtuous ideals, but yet not ever do the nuts and bolts day-to-day work that... Is required. You know, it's 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 amazing to me that it's not been a part of every single program from kids in high school, junior high, high school, and involved in every program bit of programming that they do if they're in sports because it plays such a critical and crucial role. And we need a plan.
0: Yep, we do. And so we're going to talk about it. And you know, along the analogy that we're we're going to use sort of a, a warrior analogy to walk through this. And as I said, we'll just talk through the framework today and we'll come back and drill down into each one of these elements over a series of podcasts but as we talk about this we we've put put together basically five major elements that go into mental preparation and mental training the first one is the battle plan sort of if you're going to be a warrior in this concept of running then you have to know what your objectives are and put a plan together to begin attacking those so as we talk about that high level sort of perspective on this uh, you know in the in the battle plan or the big picture how do you break that down Steve
1: yeah so the battle plan is sort of the sort of meta level the sort of backed off 10,000, mile view of of what we're trying to get accomplished in running but you know many times people don't approach this big picture effectively I think and then when they they might try to implement some of the skill sets or use some of the weapons we talk about later as they go into battle but they won't have a battle plan you know generals don't put just put guns in the hands of soldiers and tell them to shoot you know there's got to be an overall plan of attack with an ultimate goal of winning a war you know creating a mental training plan is simple but it's certainly not easy so I've got basically sort of five steps that I kind of look at um, and the order isn't absolutely crucial, but I do think that the way, if you start to work on this bigger picture and this battle plan, running through it in the five steps that I discuss here, that we are, the, the, sorry, the four steps that, I, that we are going to discuss here, I think that it is pretty important to initially go through these in, in the sequential order that I'm going to come up with them. I'm going to give them to you. So the first one I'll call or the first step of, this, of, the, of the battle plan is basically you've got to love the run. And this is going to dial into what, I, what we call motivation. It's like, why do you... You have to love to run. You have to love to get on the starting line. You have to love some aspect of this running in order to continue to do it over and over again. Even if it is um, a bitter pill, even if it is a very, very tough process, even if it is sort of like taking your medicine, you have to have your motivation right, and you have to love what you're doing. Um, the second step sort of what I kind of say is sort of who do you want to be when you grow up or maybe a better way of saying it is what kind of runner do you want to be so it's kind of taking your vision of what you want how you want to exhibit your personality structure your life your experience your worldview your whatever through the process of the runner you want to become and who you want to see so you've got to have a vision motivation is absolutely important and that motivation that has to go through a vision that you can see from a 10,000 foot level that says, I see my future running self doing X, qualifying for the, for the Boston Marathon, qualifying for the Olympic trials, running the best race I can possibly run. Um, everyone will, some people will bring to this a little bit more of a philosophical bent um, and try to run a beautiful race. Others will bring to it a dialed in really strict time-based goal. And it doesn't matter. But what does matter is that you've got a bigger vision of of who you want to be as a runner so then the third step is you've got to have a reason for doing it in the first place and i used to put this reason for running which i also many people have listened to my talks before or heard me um, give speeches they've heard me talk about having a statement of purpose i used to put the statement of purpose first but i've come to believe that these other two issues of motivation and vision are really essential to even being able to get down and dialing in to writing what a statement of purpose would be. So, And basically a statement of purpose is going to dial into why are you doing this? And you can take your statement of purpose and make it entirely fit your world view or you can pull it in and just keep it down, dialed in just to the area of being a runner and where you want to look at that from a running perspective. But you've got to actually know what your reason for running is. And the fourth step, the fourth and final step, basically is you have to want to win. Um, what the definition of winning is for each person will be a little bit different. As I said, some people are more philosophical. Um, they, they just want to run a beautiful race. Others, they want to cut people's heads off and shit down their throats. You know? <laughs> different people see it from different perspectives. But wanting to win re- means that you've got to set goals. Because winning means that there's some objective that you're trying to reach. What's the thing you want to gain? And if you don't have goals, the battle plan won't be successful. So to reiterate, basically, you got to love the run. You've got to have your motivation. Number two, you've got to know what kind of runner you want to be. You have to have the vision of who you want to be. Number three, you've got to have a reason to run, and you got to know what that reason is, and it needs to be explicitly laid out and stated in a way that you feel comfortable with and that you could share with others. That's a statement of purpose. And finally, the fourth step is you got to want to win, and you've got to set goals that allow you to know and to dial into what winning is. And so what we'll do over the coming um, weeks as we uh, come back to these, this sort of creating a mental training plan and getting um, more and more dialed into these topics, we'll talk about this big picture and the battle plan in much, much more detail. But I kind of wanted to whet the appetite of people who might have gotten a lot from this first podcast that we're talking about it and make them realize that we do have a lot, much longer vision about where we're going with this. And I think that we're going to go through some things that are going to really provide some... Significant boots on the ground, meat and potatoes benefit to the athletes that listen
0: to this. So it's interesting this one because you know, we get a lot of people that walk in our doors that are maybe just want to run, just want to get into running because they think it's something that will help them from a fitness perspective or to lose weight or whatever it may be. And sometimes I have conversations with people trying to understand why they want to run specifically. Because oftentimes I'll tell them, unless you're motivated uniquely to do this activity of running, then you should probably find something else. Because, because really, you know, the suffering that we go through, especially in the context of our training, requires a higher purpose than just wanting to do it to stay fit or just wanting to do it to lose weight. It requires, you know, knowing something a little bit deeper or at least seeking something a little bit deeper about yourself. You know, so I think that's one point to make here that, you know, we're talking about this in the context of people that really want to test themselves regardless of their pace and regardless of their starting point but aren't satisfied with the status quo that want to use running as a vehicle to go to battle and through through those battles find a sharper version of themselves. The other thing I'll say about this element you know this this kind of overarching bigger picture concept of the plan I think it evolves potentially it can evolve over time as well so you know this is probably an exercise of something as we talk through that you're, you have to refresh I know for me personally when I started running it, it came on the back of a soccer career where I was into competitive team sports and running for me was another competitive outlet and because that's what I needed. That's what I was missing at the time. But over time, it has evolved to not only a bigger personal pursuit, but also something I'm connected to as a team pursuit that gives me, you know, higher purpose than I had when I started. So, you know, so this is something that will evolve over time as well. And I think as we talk about it and drill down in this, we can talk about how that might evolve for people so
1: yeah i think that's super interesting chris and i know one of the other things i want to bring up as we are talking about this you know, you stated that it might to some runners who are beginners who are just getting started and that they that the idea of even coming up with a big picture of battle plan doesn't make any sense but you know we've watched over basically the last 10 plus 12 plus years um people who are beginner runners um and i would tell you somewhere in the vicinity of 75% of them, as soon as they start to get just a few steps beyond just trying to lose a little weight or just trying to get to a, to one finish line or just trying to find out what this whole running thing is all about, that very quickly, and I would say in a matter of weeks to months, they move so fast to the next step where they want to know, what do I do next? How do I get better? And they begin to quickly also see that their vision of who they are and what they want to accomplish requires this bigger picture view but yet we don't even place it in the training protocol that we designed for that and so i think that very quickly we all adapt into trying to find a larger purpose to what we're doing and to then get really excited about what might benefit us and how we might get there and You know, in our training protocols at Rogue, we're always talking about being consistent, you know, doing the work. Um, And I think that some of the stuff we're talking about here is as applicable to someone who's on the Boston starting line at the Boston Marathon as it is applicable to a person getting on their first starting line for a 5K, assuming that they've already sort of taken in, I want to perform at X level. And if they get there, and then most, as I said, 75% of runners in in my estimation get there really quickly. You know, so it's important to say, how does that, how does that play out? And every one of us are very, like, are very likely to get some benefit from the things that we're talking
0: about. It means we have content to add to our couch to 5k program. That's exactly right. <laughs> we do. We do. We do. <laughs> and because it, yeah. it, because it quickly becomes more, uh, more than just the running about it becomes about a personal transformation. So you're right. We've got some work to do there. All right, so that's component one of our framework is sort of this idea of what's the big picture, why are you doing this, what's your purpose, and how are you motivated? The second element is understanding as a warrior, what are your weapons? You know, what can you use as tools? So obviously there's a lot of different elements to this, but talk us through your high-level picture of how you might break those down.
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I've used the statement, I've even used it on this podcast already, it's how much I use it all the time, it's one of my cliches, which is, if you're going to go into battle, you need to bring all your weapons. Um, and usually when I'm talking about that, it's making sure that you've done the specific fitness needs, you know, got covered all the fitness grounds that you needed to, and also had all the gear and equipment that you needed to be ready to go do what you needed to do. So I'm using that same analogy of basically making sure you bring all your weapons to battle, and the con- concept of course, sort of creating the skill set or the mental skill set necessary to implement a plan. And these things are sort of gonna run the gamut. You know, I, I, there could be many more than the ones that I'm gonna have outlined here, but I'll just give you a three or four or five of them that I think that could happen, that are, that are part of that. One is skill talk and the visualization, the stuff that I didn't wanna do, that my father wanted me to do, that I now realize is incredibly important. Another is problem solving. Any athlete that I coached going into the Houston Marathon and as they go into Austin, We are talking specifically about becoming great problem solvers in the process of preparing for a race so that that is something in their skill set to be able to manage if something, when something goes wrong in a race. Um, Resilience training. This is working hard at putting yourself in the deepest, darkest holes in order for you to be able to handle some future deep, dark hole that might be coming. Um, facing down your fears maybe in other words developing some flexibility having the ability you know some of my athletes decided not to run houston um you know uh, one of them is alison maxis who was on our on our uh, podcast recently and you know i had athletes who decided that they wanted to go for it full bore no matter what at houston and i had other athletes who um decided that no they were going to live to fight another day and they weren't going to waste the fitness that they had on a weather day that wasn't ap- optimal and you know that's a that is the concept of being flexible, knowing what your purpose is and knowing what your goals are, and then lining, getting that big picture battle plan set up, and then looking at the race and saying, I have that, this particular skill, I, I need to be flexible about thinking about this. So, you know, others might be concentration, and ha- others might be habits. I mean, there's so many different things that we can talk about. I've got 13 listed right now. My guess is by the time we do that podcast, I'll probably have 15 or 20, so who knows? But those are the things that we're going to get into. Those sort of really dial into the specifics and how, what, what each of those components is, what each of those weapons you need to bring to battle is, and then how you can practically apply them. Um, and we'll talk about that in two cases. One, we'll talk a little bit about it in the one talk about the weapons, and then again, we'll talk about it again when we talk about the practical application of those skill sets and bringing them into a learning experience. A knowledge experience, a lived-in experience, and sort of then sort of a really higher level kind of a meta being experience of being a warrior. And we're gonna wrap that all up in this idea that I've been thinking about for so many years about being a warrior and having a warrior's approach. So I'm super excited, Chris, to talk more and more and more about this. As you can tell, um uh, I am this is this is putting me really in my happy place. <laughs> so, um, and I haven't you know, to be frankly honest, this is something I've been wanting to do for a long, long time and I just never dialed in and thankful to you and uh, also thankful to Rogue for our, our ability to have this podcast so I get the chance to you know, pontificate on these mystical theories of life. It's, it's going to be a whole lot of fun, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's my job to keep you out of the rabbit hole. We'll see if I can do that. <laughs> uh, so, so number one, know your plan and purpose. Number two, know your weapons. Number three, yeah. you're calling the sort of concept of personal power, I think another way to potentially frame that is Knowing or or understanding the warrior mentality. So, what do you put into this third element?
1: So I'm hugely influenced by uh, a lot of people who hear this will think I'm absolutely off on a, off my rocker. But I've been really hugely influenced by a guy named Carlos Castaneda. He wrote these books um, that are about sort of Don Juan, um, this experience of being in the desert of, of Mexico, and sort of. Creating uh through a mystical sort of worldview or or specific aspects of training to becoming a warrior, and these books were written as if they were sort of arch- uh anthropological treatises that were that were created and they really have been debunked to this point where I think of what Carlos Castaneda was talking about is primarily novelistic and 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 completely made up and, and not real but i will tell you whether it's real or it's not the concepts that they that he goes through in the books that he has and i I'm, he's got eight to ten books that are on this topic and the topic is about becoming a warrior um and so i've really been influenced and it's in that that thinking has influenced my thinking for many many years i'm not strictly following a plan or attack that is sort of carlos Castaneda. that it's just inspired by that vision um Carmen and Ricardo Troncoso, who are two of you know the coaches at Rogue, and they're hugely influential on me over in my developing as a coach and as an athlete. And I was introduced to the Carlos books from them by them, and um, they talk. That, those books talk about personal power and, and developing personal power, um, and so you know the, the things that I think that are really important are it's basically sort of a fourfold view, which is sort of taking stock of your strengths and your weaknesses. Owning your past, which is something I've talked about in the, in the, in the past before about having an attitude of, re, of really radical responsibility, and we'll talk more about that. So sort of seeing your future, um, and this is beyond what we call goal setting or visualization. This is far more along the lines of creative vision work, sort of really big picture um, aspects of that. And then finally, sort of what I, what I'll call living presence, which is sort of realizing that there is no future and that there really is no, has really been no past. We are constantly in a state of becoming in this present moment, and so you know these ideas um, are a little bit mystical, and they're definitely out there. But I'm excited about trying to share a little bit more about what personal power is and how that applies to becoming a warrior. Um, you know, it's sort of. We'll also then go through the next the next category, which is sort of those practical applications, um, as we talked about a little bit then before. And um, it, 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 it'll be it'll be fun to to see and unpack these. Um, in, in, in a podcast form and see if they resonate
0: with people. Yeah, so the third thing, this idea of personal power and kind of having that warrior mentality, it is, as you said, more mystical and in some ways scary because it requires a lot of reflection and and really knowing yourself. And so I think we're going to challenge people in the context of this thir- this third element. And then we go to the fourth, which is about becoming a warrior and the practical application of the three other elements, which is your you know, your plan, your your weapons and your mentality. So becoming a warrior, what are the practical components? So this is
1: taking all those 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 first two points of having your weapons and then having the personal power to be able to use those weapons and actually applying it practically as a skill set. And basically, what I talk to about that, it's basically initially developing those skills in isolation. That means on your own, in you know, in the the quiet of your own room, in your quiet time. However you want to, however you do that, preferably with a pen and a paper in hand, going through some of these particular aspects of the things you need to work on, um, and basically learning on your own in a quiet, in, in your in your own isolated space, what these skills are so that you can apply them. And then you step to the next level, which is developing the skills in your mind. So that's not just learning the concepts, but then it's taking them and making sure you know what they mean and where they're at. What is visualization? How does it function? And how does that function within the concept of your own personal power? Um, so you gotta know it. That's sort of taking the, 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 learning the information is different from knowing it. And knowing it means that it's been applied Mentally, and you know where to go with it. Then you need to do, as I talked about with the Asano tribe from Papua New Guinea, about taking that knowledge in order, and you have to actually put it through the the, the sort of sieve or the, the sort of the cauldron of what it is—the gauntlet of being a human being—and getting it into your body. And so it's developing those skills in the body. Um, and, I, I, and I, the first, as I talked about with isolation in the mind, that was learning and knowing. And the third one, knowing developing the skills in the body is sort of living it it's actually putting it into practice and then finally the last one is sort of integrating these skills as a warrior because we talked about that developing of the personal power in those four seconds those those four sections that that to be a warrior you then have to take all that personal power that you that you've learned about and you've worked through taking the skill sets you've learned knowing what they are, living them through your body, and then integrating it all into one whole. And that is where the magic happens. Is it easy? Heck no. Um, But I do think if we follow these practical application processes, that they'll be at least simpler than people might have thought.
0: Plus, we'll give you practical ways to kind of incorporate all these thinking, thoughts, and and concepts into workouts, into race settings, so that you can practice and and try to put some of this stuff to work for you. So that's the fourth thing, the practical elements of just becoming a warrior in practice. The last thing we're going to talk about is collaboration with your, your team, with your other warriors and your squadron leader, your coach, so that you can use those resources around you and the people and souls bar- and other minds around you to develop these skills and help you and help you develop a, it, it, develop them inside of you, you know, as iron sharpens iron. Uh, so we'll get into that in the, in the last bit, which, you know, those elements we often forget about too. I think oftentimes we think of running as a solo sport as this solo pursuit and especially the mental elements as a solo pursuit because we're the only ones that can be in our own head. But that's really not true. We've got coaches, we've got teammates that can push us and press us in these areas. So how do we think about this in the context of collaborating on the mental training?
1: You know, I think you know, one way to really look at it is sort of where we start with this, which is sort of integrating these mental skills within the concept of the periodization program that a coach sets out so that means basically taking um the exact in the workout that we're doing um in a group setting we're also asking every one of those people in that group setting to take that mental skill and work on it in this one particular place as i talked earlier maybe about running half marathon goal pace and what that feels like and what mental approaches we want to look at it doing that within the context of your specific periodization schedule allows a collaborative. Process with the coach and creating the macro, the sort of overall periodization plan, and then each of the, all of the athletes they are working through their own sort of mental struggles and challenges and insights and views, and really starting to work together to create something what I would call frankly magical, you know. And it requires us developing trust. It makes us look at where we're getting stuck at where. our where are we sort of falling into holes that where we can't get ourselves out of having a coach or some other athletes with us to help us pull out of those spaces. We all have blind spots. I think this is one of the most important aspects of being a coach is that if we self coach, we frequently never see the places that we have our biggest challenges because we don't want to look at them. And so getting over those collaborative, those collaborative experiences allow you to sort of get over your blind spots. And then, you know, I mean, Probably, uh, you know, uh, at the real base level, just the accountability of others, of having a coach, the accountability of having a group of other people to train with is so important in terms of showing up, getting the work done, and having others in the same experience doing it with you. And finally, you know, I have a real big belief that the only way things happen – Really, at the highest levels, or when you are willing to take a long-term approach to development, I tell athletes that join our team Rogue group all the time. If not willing to look at their training from an 18-month perspective, that they should try to join another group because I'm going to be constantly thinking 18 months ahead of where my athletes are to make sure that they've got the physical physical periodization and the physical work done but it also means that we have to do that from the standpoint of of the mental game and having this long-term developmental approach of not trying to fix it all before one marathon or one race but allowing each one of those races to sort of inform and recontextualize the effort that we're going to be doing in future races and what our training is going to be in the context of the collaboration we're having with coaches and athletes so you know this last point just sort of puts. A a bow on it all and says, okay, we're not doing all this in isolation. We're also doing this in an an experience of being in the world, of the world with others. And that's where the real magic happens. So I I think it'll be a lot of fun talking through those
0: points. So there you go. Those are the five pieces. One, battle plan. Two, what are your weapons? Three, how do you build a warrior mentality and and understand this concept of personal power? Three, how do you apply it practically to become a warrior and then Uh, sorry four how do you probably practically become a warrior and then five how do you do this in the context of a team with a coach and and teammates potentially by your side so that's your one hour infomercial on our mental (laughs) training series which we'll we'll publish more information about when the next one's coming but it'll be about a month out and we'll walk through those five elements over the course of three or four more episodes and so with that entree, um, you know, we thought we'd give a little bit of a dessert as we close. and you know, We often close with a training tip. And so today we're going to close with a training tip that has an element of mental preparation in it. And this week we have a big race in Austin, the 3.5 Marathon. So I've got runners in my group that are preparing for it. And I talk about this idea a lot in training that fast running is relaxed running, or relaxed running is fast running, if you look at a sprinter running 100 meters and you watch their face, you'll see their cheeks bouncing up and down effortlessly because they've taken all the tension out of their bodies and they're putting all of their energy, all of their their, their sort of motion into the power of their legs to move them forward so they're not using any extra stress, any extra tension on any other body part And most of the time in the context of running, we think, I have to push, I have to fight, I have to be tense to run faster, but really it's the opposite. Fast running is relaxed running, or relaxed running is fast running, and that takes practice both in the training context and in a racing context. And so I laid out some tips for my athletes about practically how do you think about relaxed running or what are some ways to tactically apply that in your own running. I'll share mine and then you can add on to it, Steve. One is, as you go in a workout or in a race, developing a bit of a mental checklist. For me, I go head to toe and and basically think through, you know, the, over the course of 30 seconds to a minute, each body part and make sure that it's relaxed and not holding tension. So I'll start with my head, with my cheeks and my lips and and my jaw, making sure that those are relaxed and not holding any tension. Sometimes a simple smile will will get you to, uh, to release some of that. So I'll start with the head, then I'll work down to the shoulders, make sure that they're not tense up near my neck, they're sort of resting comfortably in their place, making sure then that my arms and hands are flowing freely at, at my side and not uh, holding any tension in my fists. A lot of people end up clenching their fists, which is just taking energy away. And then I'll work down to my legs and feet and I think that's the hardest to, part to grasp is how do you relax your legs or at least let them flow freely in the context of running because we think of them as tense entities in that in that movement. But you really can if you focus on it and meditate on it, and get them to relax and at least move effortlessly. The analogy I use in this context is if you're throwing a ball, then if you, if you try to throw a ball with your arm as hard as you can, if you try to put a lot of effort into it, then oftentimes it doesn't go as far as when you just kind of release it and freewheel it and just let it fly. And so it's the same, I think, in the context, uh, in that context with your legs. So that's that's one tactic I use with or tell people to use. The second is, is to try to find a meditative state with your running. I've been known to close my eyes in a race on a long straightaway and then just focus on the rhythm of my breathing to try to meditate on the moment and not you know not carry any stress in my mind in fact my you know my marathon pr uh was sort of prototypical, prototypical of this advice i came out early in that race and you saw me i think at mile four and i looked terrible but um <laughs> you know I, I just came into that race because of a lot of reasons there was a lot of chaos i just you know switched races overnight and um brought a lot of tension into the race and so it took me about eight miles to get relaxed but The only way I did it was doing this idea of closing my eyes, breathing, focusing on the rhythm, and just trying to find a smooth, relaxed rhythm, almost meditating in motion. So that's the second thing I would say. And the third, as I mentioned on the first, is that sometimes just a simple smile or looking around and enjoying the moment can take some of that tension away and help you relax. Whether you're in a race or maybe you're just in a workout looking at the sunset or the trees that you're you're running through, so those are three tactical things but really practice relaxation in the context of your of your running and if you do that correctly you'll find that you can get to places that maybe you couldn't get before thoughts steve yeah so
1: i i agree with you 100 percent i mean there's nothing to add except just to maybe add one little piece that i remember from my training when i was in college Um, my coach Dan huntsman who passed away recently um, used to say something that I still use with my athletes, and many times I think they're going to hear it from me. They're like, "What in the heck are you talk about?" But it's called. I, he used to say all the time, "Find a rhythm, make it rhythm running. Find the rhythm in your running, make it rhythm running." And I think something about getting that rhythm. You talked about it in breathing, but I also think of it in just the turnover of their legs. As you said, sometimes it's more difficult to find in those feet and the legs how to relax them. Getting into a steady rhythmic. Turnover that you feel like is strong and powerful is such an important part of the process. And you have to practice that. That's something that just doesn't come without, with you know, out of, out of, out of, out of, by nature, out of the pure blue sky. So that's the only other piece I would add is to start working on when you do closes and runs and workouts. Maybe when you're doing in the middle of a hard, long run, you might, you might think about finding that rhythm and getting in a rhythm and what does that feel like? Because I think that can help greatly in getting into. The physical part of what being in a relaxed rhythm is to add to the three different points you just made about what relaxation can be both met in, in the mental space.
0: So great stuff, Chris. That's yeah. I, I love that. That's awesome. Some people call it flow, I think, in yeah. the context <laughs> of, uh, yeah. of other exactly. of other uh, pursuits. So there you go. That's your dessert today. As I said, we teed up this mental concept of, of mental training, and we'll cover that in, in a future in future podcasts in a series format, more to come on that. Thank you for joining us. This is episode six, as always, of the Running Rogue podcast. You can check us out on our website at roguerunning.com. com. You can follow us on Facebook at forward slash Rogue Running or Instagram and Twitter at Rogue Running. Do find a find out more about us, and if you want to come train with us, check it out on our website. We are here and eager to talk. Also, feel free to share comments or questions on our podcast post. We love to get feedback especially as we walk through this series. So thank you all for joining us. We will see you next time.